are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Win Win Podcast. If you don't know, one of the things I consider to be one of my personality traits is my sick obsession with all things fraudsters. Growing up, I loved watching Ocean's Eleven, but then it really escalated, so I've gone as far as listening to hours of Bernie Madoff's testimonies from prison with the New York Times. I love the whole Enron scandal, but really my number one fraudster obsession is Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. I think it is such a multifaceted story with gender and Silicon Valley drama, venture capital, and particularly relevant to this podcast, it raises a lot of questions of how do we measure successful innovation? Is being a Steve Jobs-inspired visionary leader the right leadership style for innovation? I really can see it go both ways, but anyway, I really enjoyed watching Hulu's biopic series about the Theranos scandal called The Dropout this weekend, so highly recommend checking it out if you ponder the same questions, but if you're normal and don't have a weird obsession with fraud, that's fine too. Today's guest is not Elizabeth Holmes, but it is Joy Fua, who is COO of Heka Global, a fintech startup that deals with a really interesting problem in the financial ecosystem, and that is non-performing loans. We break down what that means, but to give a brief overview, there are billions and billions of dollars worth of loans that have not been repaid in the world. Some of those are because people can't afford to pay them back. Some of them are because they are scammers, and some of them are because someone moved houses or apartments and the bank just can't contact them to let them know that they owe money. Interestingly enough, that money is just kind of left on the table, but has huge implications for the economy and for those companies and, of course, the people who took out those loans. We really get into what it takes to innovate in this fascinating industry and how Joy came into it. Spoiler, she was not passionate about non-performing loans her whole life. Uh, So I hope you enjoy the podcast and learn as much as I did. Hi, Joy. Welcome to the Win-Win Podcast. Hey, Zoya. Thank you for having me here. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while, and that's because of many reasons, including that I think that your personal story is super, super inspiring and exciting, but also because I have a clear interest and a soft spot for fintech, which is all of the rage right now. So as we dive into your career trajectory, I'm curious to know, prior to HECA, were you familiar with financial services? Were you following the space? Absolutely not. In fact, I was someone who never really enjoyed uh, the financial uh, side of business. I I was an entrepreneur before, and this was always the part that I always delegated to my partner. But the problem that we were solving in HECA was so interesting. And for me, it was a real problem. And I, I dove right into it. I when I started in financial services, you know, I kind of had to convince myself that I liked it. I was like, no, you know, checking accounts are so interesting. And then, you know, when I actually 
dove into the work, I saw how much complexity there is and actually that it has such a huge impact on human lives and on Mm -hmm. businesses. So now I'm like, can't quit it, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. always a good time. One of the things I love about your trajectory is that you have such a strong background in the world of technology through your experience, but actually not in your education, which was in Middle Eastern studies. So at what point in your life did you enter the tech space? And was it hard to get your foot in the door or be taken seriously in it? because your background and education was not in it? I think I had a both a soft and a hard start into tech. I started right after university, and actually it wasn't just Middle Eastern Studies. My degree was in liberal arts. Mm. Even though a lot of people laugh at us about having degrees in liberal arts, maybe at certain point in my career, I also doubted my decision. Like, why didn't I study business even? or Mm -hmm. computer science, or something more relevant. But when I look back, it really shaped the way that I think and view the world. It helped me to tackle problems and tackle my career and everything in my life, really, with a very multidisciplinary view. I just come from this role where you're like, okay, why not let's just try to take a very human solution to solve bringing back the example of finance, that it's all just numbers. When I first got into it, I was like, I was thinking, wow, this is overwhelming. But at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, the problems are all start from from the person. Even though I'm not a designer, I went to design school. And I think it's such a big part of my DNA, just thinking about, you know, the user experience and thinking about the difference that visual aesthetics have to how people feel, how people act, how they spend money, all of these mm-hmm. things. And and so I definitely have no regrets. But I, but I will say that people do kind of ask me about it all the time. So do people ask you about it all the time? Or at this point, with the experience that you have, they don't really care what you studied? At this point, people don't really care at all. And also, the first thing I did after university was my own tech consultancy. And so Mm. because I I didn't jump into a company where I was reporting to someone, I could really build my own world. While that had its own fair share of imposter syndrome, it also, you know, immediately catapulted me uh, into that level where I was speaking with founders who were launching their startups, sometimes CEOs, sometimes CIOs. So my trajectory, in a sense, it's different from other people in a sense. I didn't start with work. I've never interviewed for a job either. Right, right. Um, Yeah. uh, And it's taken its own path. Yeah, so so let's talk about that because I I constantly have this idea that I kind of follow my career with. And I think, you know, I went to the Israeli army, as you know. You know, for me, I do have a little bit of that mentality of like, earn your stripes, get the master's degree, and then do entrepreneurial things, and then do X, Y, Z, right? And I know that that's actually not the norm anymore. I think more of your trajectory is actually Mm -hmm. the norm these days. But I am curious for myself and for other people that may be getting out of university and considering what that next step is. How did you get legitimacy? I don't mean imposter syndrome. I mean like actual clients to buy a service that you are selling. I think I still, till today, have a constant struggle with whether I should go back and get an MBA, whether I should do another degree, whether I should still Mm -hmm. go back and gain um, technical expertise. This is something Mm -hmm. I still struggle with today. And I still don't think I have enough knowledge. 
um, in specific things. The best advice I could give to someone is really to be true to yourself. For me, when I made my first choice, it was really the opportunity that was presented in front of me. How it happened was a friend from university, an Israeli friend, he said, well, uh, do you want to start something together? Let's bridge you know, Israeli innovation with uh, the Singaporean financial ecosystem. And that's how it started. And, and at that time, I wanted to continue staying in Israel. I was excited by the possibility of tech and how the tech scene was booming. I wasn't ready to go home yet. And so I just stepped into that opportunity. I didn't think about the challenges that it would present. It was more like a I'm going to start doing it first and then deal with the challenges as I go along. And I think for me, that decision was true to who I am. At every junction in my career where I could have made the choice of uh, what to do, I never chose the option that would be the best in five years. I always just chose at that moment what would be true to me. And Yeah. It's such a fine balance, right, of saying, thinking ahead. And, you know, the question that people always ask is, and I'll ask you at the end of this podcast mm-hmm. is like, where do you want to be in X amount of years or X amount of months? And I am by nature a planner, but I, I completely agree with you. I know you mentioned you haven't interviewed it for roles in the past in your career, which which must have been a really interesting way to navigate your career. And I've heard it from a lot of innovation uh, executives, actually, that they've had a similar experience. So if you were to give advice to somebody who's, you know, not at the beginning of their career, somebody who's, you know, five, six, seven years into their career, and, you know, and is looking to kind of have that sort of pipeline, how do they develop that pipeline? How do they put themselves out there in a way that they maybe don't have to interview for their next role? The easy answer to that is networking. <laughs> I'm not great at that, honestly speaking. But I think uh, the a more genuine answer that is challenging as well um, is to build deep relationships. Deep relationships with people that you trust and trust you. And it really doesn't have to just do with your career. All of the relationships that I have built and the network that I have built have come from my personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really invested in them. I invested in being a good friend, a good person. I invested in being curious about the things mm-hmm. that people are passionate about and want to do, that the, problem, the problems that people are facing. And from, from there, when, when someone wanted to start something um, or someone wanted to build a team, I became like a natural person, a person that they, that they would naturally come to and ask like, hey, do you want to join my team? It could just even begin with like, what do you think about this idea? That is how I got started, really by investing in my personal relationships. Oftentimes, I think there's this connotation of networking as a dirty word, and I can totally see why. Mm-hmm. I, I know I've walked into these large conference rooms and, you know, felt like it's so awkward to kind of insert yourself into these conversations, and I hated every element of it, but I agree with you. It's more, you know, my biggest opportunities came from the deep relationships rather mm-hmm. than, like, handing over a business card or whatever the 2022 equivalent is of, of a business card. Prior to HECA, you were managing a coding bootcamp company, Leywagen, with over $19 million in funding for three and a half years, 
targeted at creative entrepreneurs and others that may be looking to upskill or change career paths. I'm actually in the midst of a Python class myself, and while I am so excited to be learning this new skill set, I still have to be honest and say that I'm figuring out like the magic of coding that people talk about and the empowerment that can come with it. Honestly, I know it's because I'm new at it, um, and it probably hasn't clicked 100% yet. But for you, what was the experience of running Laywagon in an operational and management capacity? And what skills and learnings did you take uh, with you to Hacka, your current venture? Let me just say that on a personal level, I still haven't found the magic of coding. I know, <laughs> I know that there is magic there, but it's not my passion. When I look back, and it's you know, you always uh, have these like aha moments when you look back into your career, and not when, a, not as it's happening, yeah, not not <laughs> as not as it is happening. But I think it was the natural uh, next step after the tech consultancy and after my degree actually in liberal arts, like the next step. And the next evolution of my um, education and expertise, and at that time I didn't realize that when I and when we got started, but it actually really helped me to build a product mindset. It helped me to understand um, the design and development process without being pigeonholed into a pure technical mindset. So a lot right. of times you hear people when you speak to software developers. Uh, they're, they're always stereotypes, right? Uh, they're always people who say, I don't know how to communicate with them. I asked for this product that solved this problem, but they, they built this completely different solution that I didn't ask for that solves a problem that, you know, that, that is not my problem. And, mm-hmm. and so like with the wagon, it is a coding bootcamp for entrepreneurs. It is not just, you know, a coding bootcamp that teaches you Python or JavaScript or Ruby on Rails. It actually taught people how to learn to code with a product mindset. So in nine weeks, you learned how to design. You, you learned, first of all, how to think about user problems, how to design a solution that solves it. You also design it on Figma, what the application will look like. You actually code it. You implement your product in 10 days. And at the end, you pitch a product. You don't just pitch a business idea, but you actually... Uh, learn how to pitch to stakeholders um, a product that they would want to build. And right now at Hacker, also because when I joined Hacker, we were we were ground zero. We had no product. We didn't even have our full team. And I was able to bring in that like uh, Jill of all trades, or you know a Renaissance woman sort of mindset. Yeah, to really pull the product together right from um, our customers' pain. And I think one of the biggest learnings is actually when you watch other people code or other people design, I think even if you're not the one technically doing the designing or the coding, you actually learn about the way that people think, which is, you know, clearly very Mm -hmm. connected to your liberal arts background, Mm -hmm. but also to your point, it enables you to think like, how can I apply this mindset of somebody else to XYZ product or XYZ problem? So we've been talking a little bit about Hekka, but I'd really love to dive into the company. Uh, as I mentioned, you are heading up operations at Hekka, which is a fintech. And when people who are actually interested in fintech, unlike us originally, when those people think about fintech, a lot of the times they think about more of the consumer-facing aspects mm-hmm. of fintech, like digital currencies and crypto buy now, pay later, e-commerce, whatever else. And I know you won't get offended when I say this, 
but when I heard that HECA helps financial institutions like banks engage with hard-to-reach clients or unfound borrowers, it didn't quite strike me as the sexiest innovation in this space. Um, so let's start with you explaining what HECA actually does and what impact it makes. Because, you know, when I learned about that, that's where I think the sexiness came in for me. Mm-hmm. Um, let's be real here for a moment. It is the most unsexy area in finance, um, <laughs> non-performing loans. That's what we're dealing with. We've heard from people also, you know, in the last year and a half that dealing in this area may be bad karma because you're helping banks find people who um, haven't paid them back. But when you think about it in the finance world where it's all numbers to a regular person, to the common person, it is numbers that they don't, they can't fathom. You know, it's just right. out there. It's huge usually. It's in the billions. And they're like, what has this got to do with me? But at the right. same time, when the financial system collapses, it affects everyone. Everyone, right. I mean, what happened in the 2008 crisis? People thought, oh, like this house and this mortgage. And it's like, no, the entire world went down. <laughs> exactly. And it, it was in, it was after the 2008 financial crisis that the problem of non-performing loans started to really rear its ugly head. Approximately 5% of consumer lending performed by top banks worldwide is non-performing. So in the US and Europe alone, this aggregates to a non-performing loan volume of $657 billion. That's a huge problem, globally speaking. This is just the US and Europe alone. And imagine this. Most people, me included, have a box or a bowl of change at home, a box of pennies at home in Israel, Agorot, uh, mm-hmm. where they store loose change at the end of the day. I once counted my box of loose change and it was a few hundred, so maybe even a thousand, and it could buy me and my friend like a nice dinner. Mm-hmm. Now, an equivalent of this box of loose change in the banking world is non-performing loans. Most of the time, banks write it off, they try to sell it for on average 88% discount of an entire portfolio of non-performing loans. Um, And these non-performing loans, if you think about it, they are naturally generated due to macro or idiosyncratic factors. As long as human beings exist, there will be non-performing loans. And we don't even Mm -hmm. need to think about the more dramatic or extreme reasons like people getting bankrupt or people being criminals, just think about, take, take me for an example. Uh, when I move apartments, the bank is the last person on the list that I update that I have moved apartments. Actually, mm-hmm. it's not even on my list at all. I don't inform the bank <laughs> that I move apartments. So if I have an outstanding loan from the bank, they, they are now sending uh, my letters to um, an address that is already outdated. So right. we've realized over the last uh, year of work, year and a half, that banks just lose contact with people for very normal reasons. People moving apartments, changing their phone numbers, changing their emails. And coming from the banking world yourself, you you would know that banks have no scalable way of updating this information using publicly available information. For sure. I mean, we're, we're relying on the people to do it themselves. And to your point, in a good scenario, right? You have no motivation mm-hmm. to do it because you just forget. And in a bad scenario, you're trying to not update your address so mm-hmm. the bank can't find you. Yeah, here at Hacker, we're not even 
thinking or dealing with the percentage of people who are who have bad intentions or who who are unable to pay for mm-hmm. regular reasons. We're just talking about people who are still employed, who have intentions to pay, but just, you know, forgot because they moved. So what we're offering to our clients, compliant and scalable way to re-engage with them. At the same time, we're helping them to be e- efficient in their resource allocation. If a small bank, like one of our clients, have 600,000 clients to get in touch with by phone call. Won't you want to know if 300,000 of them are uncontactable because the information doesn't work? This would save you two years of time, let's say. So just so like me and our listeners understand, what are, you know, what are banks and other companies doing now? Like, what is it that you're doing that is actually different from the existing ways that these companies are dealing with these non-performing loans? This is another factor in innovation, I think. At this moment, at least, we will be in the near future. At this moment, we are not building some groundbreaking, revolutionary technology that the world has never seen. Mm-hmm. We are really doing much, much needed digitalization of an industry that is mm-hmm. prime for innovation. So this is our mm-hmm. starting point. And we have chosen a problem, uh, the problem of contactability that people are not even thinking about. They know that it's a problem. Our clients face this problem, but it's not something that is on the forefront of their minds because this is an industry that has so many problems from data silos to uh, asset valuation. And contactability is something that they're not thinking about, even though on a day-to-day basis, um, the loan manager or the asset manager is facing this problem. Because for them, if they can't contact the person, they just move to the next one. So, I mean, it's interesting that you you say that it's not this groundbreaking innovation. I think it raises the question of, you know, your definition of innovation. Because I, you know, when people hear digitalization or they think it's probably, oh, so straightforward, so easy. I mean, I can tell you, again, working at a large financial institution, digitizing anything is not as simple as like, popping it on a website or creating a database. I mean, these are huge, huge companies and industries that are ultimately responsible for people's money and they have custody over that money and, you know, they they have responsibilities to their customers. And so I think what you're doing, even though perhaps you're not building a a brand new uh, system or product in some ways, ultimately, it sounds like what you're doing is, is innovative in a different way. So I guess... My question to you is, what is your definition of innovation then? Innovation is doing things better day to day. Innovation is not just the buzzwords. It's not machine, machine learning, right. AI, all of, all of that. Innovation is really taking anything that you're doing in the day to day and saying, I could do this in a more efficient way or a simpler way or a way in fact, that makes people happier or want to do it better. Mm -hmm. And innovation for me, when it comes to what we're actually doing, I would even consider innovation as speaking to the clients, understanding what their real problems are. Sometimes what our customers say is their pain is not their real pain. And sometimes the the solutions that they are using to solve their problem may not actually be solving the problem that they want to solve. So innovation is also active listening, understanding what actually is the problem and understanding um, what the solution should be and being able to predict the next problem 
after you solve the current problem. Because mm-hmm. right now, for example, in what we're doing, we are really starting at the very beginning of innovation in the non-performing loans industry. And we are already looking you know, ahead to see after this, what is next? Um, we are now dealing with contactability, but we are already in R&D this year for collectability, which is can people pay? When can people pay? And how can we, you know, treat the collection process in a more human-centric way using uh, consumer data and as well in a more data-driven way instead of just using um, information and data that banks and funds have at the time of loan origination? How can we actually see clients, see a profile of a client in a cohesive way and enable our clients to actually uh, treat each borrower or each debtor in a human and a, in a comprehensive way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ultimately, you are having to be creative, I think, in a multifaceted way, which, you know, we spoke about your education before. I mentioned buy now, pay later earlier, but one of the things that excite me about some of the consumer-facing products is actually studying the impact that they have on the consumers and the consumer behaviors, but ultimately these larger systems of financial services, which is also the space that you're in because... I do think HECA in many ways is not just thinking about one isolated problem of a loan. It's it's really the entire ecosystem. So specifically with buy now, pay later, what people don't really realize is that, you know, when they use the buy now, pay later providers, it actually makes going into a ton of debt easier and easier. And so I'm curious about what impact you think consumer fintech products have on your industry and or what are your general thoughts about the consumer engagement with fintechs and how it's impacting the rest of the system? One of the things that I didn't mention previously is the specific type of loans that we're dealing with now are unsecured loans, which is really Mm -hmm. buy now, pay later, you know, credit card loans, things that people don't have to put their house behind, small loans, small value, like a Hundred from hundreds of dollars to a few thousand dollars. And when you're talking about digital banks or even especially digital banks, but also big banks, these are the types of loans or this, these are the amounts that put together could be huge. It could be billions of dollars. But if you are dealing, if you have to deal with them individually, it, it could be a billion dollars from 500 million people. How are you going mm-hmm. to deal with collecting from this amount, you know, with, with such a, and each of them have such a small size loan. So I think that what we're doing would actually be very helpful in the future when, when this problem really compounds. Uh, yeah. Right now, most of our clients are not digital banks, not companies who, who are dealing with by now pay later consumer lending in this sense, but in the future, especially where this problem is going to become bigger, then we would also be able to implement a much bigger SaaS solution for industries like this. Before we wrap it up and I ask you my final question, one thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, of course, this notion of gender. And you and I previously have had some of these conversations around gender offline. And you've mentioned to me in the past that because you look younger than you actually are, people tend to call you cute 
and have a different mm-hmm. attitude towards you. You know, you're the COO of a highly impressive company. We've just spent half an hour talking about your expertise and your background and your thinking. I can imagine that it's beyond frustrating. So, you know, just curious to think about how that has manifested in your life and the way that it makes you approach leadership and innovation and careers as a whole. Right now in in HECA, all our hires have been female, from the analysts to developers. We actually just hired our very first male developer this week. <laughs> and and this is this has been very different from my previous positions. So my in my first business, uh, it was me. I had a male business partner who was also uh, my best friend. And at that time, we jumped into it. I didn't even, you know notice uh, how people were looking at me because he was based in Singapore as an Israeli. I was based in Israel as a Singaporean. So I I already had all the differences stamped on me. When I walked into a meeting, I was Asian. I looked young. I'm a woman. So in light of all of this, I just walked in without even thinking that people were looking at me in a different way. So that's how it started. And then we moved into the wagon. And I, I remember that I had raised my voice a little bit at someone and the person told me and this is so cliche because you hear it all the time I think it's even written in some um, tech women in tech books that someone said that I was being bossy or too aggressive mm-hmm. and in that moment I stopped and I said well if my business partner who was in the room had done the exact same thing the person would have just laughed and said okay like um, I'm gonna go do it Mm-hmm. And that was the very my very first encounter in realizing that there was a difference in the way that I was being perceived. After this problem was highlighted to me, that was when I started to read into it to realize how can I balance that inequality in my own life? How can I not sure. be so affected by it as well? Because I didn't want to be paralyzed to the point where I'm like just advocating for it but not actually being able to take strides in my own life. And I think to that extent, working with people that, uh, you, that you believe in, working with people that you know, even though they may have their own biases because everyone has their own biases, me included, they will be willing to step out of that when you bring their attention to it and be able to have an open mindset. I think... Choosing the right people, while it actually could be the most difficult thing to do in your career, is something that I always fall back to, people. And that's that's ultimately at the root of every problem, innovation, and opportunity, right? Yeah. So looking at how far you've come is, is just super impressive and inspiring. So with that, I would love to ask you one last innovation question, and that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? In one month, I'm hoping to have a full pipeline of clients and pilots lined up in some new market, including the US, because we started in Europe. And one month from now, I would also like to have implemented our new pricing model at Hacker. So far right now, we've been proving our hypothesis to clients, proving that our solution can improve the success rate by X amount. We at Hacker really want to move that into actually a subscription model where our clients can actually give us all their legacy portfolios and we'll help them to prioritize and sort through everything. 
that's one month and two months and three months from now. Ten years, I will be first of all a mother with kids, with a happy family. I'm hoping that Hacker will be a household name in the world of not just non-performing loans and non-performing loan management, but also lending, because of the way we would have uh, broken data silos and enabled clients, banks, funds to to be able to access data outside of their traditional data sources and actually bring it and combine it and merge it with their internal data to be able to see their clients and to to see the way that they land in a more cohesive and real way. Amazing. Well, I'm so excited to follow along and see all the great heights you and your company will achieve. Thank you so much for joining me on the Win-Win Podcast today. Thanks, Zora. Thanks for listening to Win-Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.